Hello, everyone. Welcome back to I See What You're Saying, the Disciplined Listening Podcast. I'm Michael Reddington, and today it is my pleasure to introduce our next guest, David Dye. David is a leadership expert, speaker, multiple-time author with more books on the way. He is the president of Let's Grow Leaders, an organization that he runs with his wife, Karen, which is a great story. And he is the host of the Leadership Without Losing Your Soul podcast. He's a great guy with a wealth of knowledge, experience, great perspectives and ideas. He's had me on his show previously, and I'm really, really, really excited to have this conversation with him today and share all of his ideas, expertise, and stories with you. We're going to dive into not just his business journey, but we're also going to talk about the exhaustive research that he's done, lessons he has from working with various clients around the world. We're going to really tailor the conversation to two of his books, Courageous Cultures and Winning Well. We'll have examples for business, of course. We'll have examples for family dynamics and conversations as well. And I'm really excited for this conversation. As David likes to say, results in relationships aren't an either-or situation. We need both, and we need to drive our results through our relationships. And I'm really excited for him to share so many of his ideas with everybody today. Before we get started, of course, we need to thank our sponsors. So first, let's thank Humantel for everyone who is interested in developing the ability to understand what people are likely thinking and feeling in real time by evaluating their changing emotions. Please head over to Humantel.com and enter the code INQUASIVE25 for 25% off their best-in-class online self-paced training. I highly recommend it. I've done it myself. And once you start learning to see these changing expressions of emotion, it's going to be very hard to unsee them. I highly recommend it. Please also head over to Emotional Intelligence Magazine at ei-magazine.com and dive into their ever-growing resources of articles, books, podcasts, interviews, cohorts, online training, in-person. They have so many things going on over there. Please check out Emotional Intelligence Magazine. And also, please, for the interviewers, head over to certifiedinterviewer.com for the International Association of Interviewers. Check out everything they have going on there from content to legal updates to events, networking, online events, in-person events. See if that benefits and that membership is best for you and your team. And also, while you're there, Check out the certified forensic interviewer designation. Get all of your questions and see if leveling yourself up and your team up to that level of expertise is what's best for your investigative excuse me, organization. I can't thank you all enough for being here today. Thank you very much for taking the time to watch or listen to our conversation. And now without further ado, I introduce to you, David Dye. Good afternoon, David. It is so great to see you. Thank you so very much for taking the time to join us today. I'm excited to be here, Michael. It's a pleasure. It's always great to see you. I always enjoy our conversations. And this time we get to flip the script a little bit, which I personally am looking forward to. Um, but you've had me on your show a couple of times, which I'm grateful for. And we'll give it multiple plugs as, as we go through here. Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, a, a great podcast. We're going to get into so much of the work that you do. But before we do, for people who might not be familiar with you, could you give us a little bit of a walkthrough of your journey and how you got to your current role? Sure. I'll start kind of at the current role. So I'm the president of Let's Grow Leaders. We're an international leadership development consultancy and uh, really focused on human-centered leadership, very practical skills for leaders at all levels and organizations that prize a human-centered culture and and want to achieve amazing results. So the journey that got me there, uh, I always attribute it, like my earliest leadership memory, I was the oldest of six kids. And uh, from a very young age, I was asking myself like, how do you get things done? Like, so when I think about my earliest, one of my earliest leadership memories is my dad, single parent says, David, you got to get this house clean. So he's leaving for work at the beginning of the day. It's like a summer day or whatever. You got to get the house clean. I'm 11 years old. I got five brothers and sisters. The house is a disaster. And there was an or else attached to his (laughs) statement. Uh, You know, it was implied. I didn't hear it or else, but it was there. I'm like, what am I going to do? So, I uh, thought long and hard, and my 11-year-old self figured out a good plan. I called everybody down in the basement. I'm the oldest, so they had to come, you know, so they come on down. I said, all right, so here's what's going to happen. And I delegated, like, okay, people got to do different things. You're going to sleep. You're going to pick up trash. You pick up toys. Great. I head upstairs, and my sister, the next oldest, she says, well, what are you going to do? And I said, 
I'm going to shut this door at the top of the stairs and lock it. And when you all have the basement clean, then you can come out. <laughs> yeah. So that's one of my earliest leadership memories. Not recommended, by the way, listeners, don't write that one down. Uh, well, you can, you know, I always ask, okay, so how clean did they get the basement? Right. They got it one scrap of dust, one speck of dust clean enough, the minimum amount of effort that would allow me to unlock that door. And of course, what happened next time that I said, hey, we got to get the house clean. You know, if you met my sisters, you know, they locked me in the closet. So <laughs> yeah, that never worked again. So, but it was an early lesson about leadership. And like, so I'm asking these questions, like, how do you actually influence and work together and get things done? And and obviously, and, and you're passionate about communication. Communication has so much to do with our influence, our relationships. So that journey lasted for me for decades, still on that journey. But it took me to, uh, I worked for a human service nonprofit, um, working with kids who were in real dire need of, of really difficult circumstances and things and um, in supporting and mentoring and, and teaching leadership for them helping them see their own, find their own voice, see their worth and, and tap into that and, and so on. And in uh, that organization ended up joined at the beginning, ended up working as the chief operating officer and then uh, for the local outfit and then CEO of the national replication effort, did a lot of leadership management training for people in that process. And I got to the point where I could no longer have those conversations one-on-one -on -one because there's too many people spread too far across the country. So I started blogging and in that process, uh, it wasn't long before people were asking me, well, when are you writing your first book? Well, when are you going to, and, you know, and on it went, I realized that my biggest passion from a career standpoint was really helping leaders and managers become the best version of themselves and equipping them with those skills to be effective and maintain their, that's the name of my show, Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, maintain their humanity in the process uh, while getting those results. And so I uh, went out on my own, started my own business. Uh, Met my wife and and uh, um, today co-partner, co-author, and co-everything uh, in all those ways uh, through the work that we were doing. And uh, eventually we merged our businesses and, and so on. That's another story. But so that's the short, short version of from age 11 to today of how I got into leadership development this way. Yada, yada, yada. Here we are. Here we are. Well, I certainly appreciate you walking us through it. Thank you. And I love not only the story about locking your siblings in the basement, because who wouldn't love the opportunity to do that, I'm sure, in most families, but also the way that you talked about the amount of effort that they put in, because that really is a perfect analogy for what a lot of leaders, probably with good intentions and without malice, do to their teams. They end up creating compliance as opposed to commitment. Yeah. Get the minimum amount, chalk it up as a win. It's I can check it off the list. It's done. Let's move on. But they don't realize the long-term issues that they're creating, the bigger fights they're setting up for the future, the resentment that they're creating by using that approach. And what they're categorizing as wins is actually far below the potential they could be achieving with more evolved approaches. Absolutely. Far below the potential of what the team could do because you're just getting the minimum and also the damage you're doing to yourself. And this was something that took me a while to realize as I worked with different leaders who had that leadership style, uh, using fear, power, control to get things done and you only get the minimum. Well, you put a lot of energy in as a leader if you're using that style uh, and you're going to do one of two things. I've seen both and and they don't end well for the leader. And the one is that you put a ton of energy into yelling louder because at a certain point, whatever your message of fear, power control is, people get used to it, they tune it out. And so now you have to yell even louder and get even more crazy and, and all that. And that comes at a cost to your yourself, your soul, your your mental well-being, your physical health with the stress that comes with that. Or they'll put time into having to constantly replace all the people that they have chased off if those people have choices. Uh, and now they run all those people out. They're constantly having to fill and bring more people in. And that kind of that hamster wheel of stress and frustration and anything, it, it, it it's havoc for that leader. Uh, and the leaders I've known who have that, they end up having heart attacks and really bad stress-related illnesses. And you know, it's not good for them either. So um, you're absolutely right. It's not to happen to the potential of the team, nor is it good for that leader. 
And I think it's funny, well, ironically funny about how you talk about they have to yell louder. We often kind of joke that all too often a questioning technique that people will use where if you don't answer the first time or don't give me the answer I want the first time, I'll just ask the same question again louder and and, and expect that to give me a different response when to your point, we're just getting ourselves all worked up and driving our team away. Absolutely. So you and I, not entirely, but share a little bit of a similar piece in our personal story. And I'm not going to ask you for lots of detail, but you mentioned it, that you work with your wife and that you guys merged your businesses. So people who know Brooke and I know that she and I met through my job. I I was teaching a seminar she attended uh, to give her all due credit. She completely ignored me for two days, (laughs) didn't interact with me at all, and then proceeded to ignore me for the next year and a half before finally sending me an email about an investigation she had at work, which she may now regret having sent. I've, I've never been bold enough to ask, but that, you know, one conversation led to another and led to another. And now, you know, we're married and we have our family and at least I'm super happy. I'm, I'm assuming that she is as well. Um, so from your standpoint, from, from the outside looking in, I think it's pretty unique and pretty special that you were able to meet Karen through your work and build your businesses together. But as you as we think about kind of the ups and downs of businesses and everything that we go through, what have been, I guess, probably the best way to ask the question is some of the unique advantages and opportunities you've had by sharing that experience with your wife. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, as I go back to, uh, I I like to say that it it was, I did, we did meet online, but it wasn't the swipe left or swipe right kind. I (laughs) I would have swiped. I don't know what the right direction to even swipe is. That's, that's how out of touch I am. But, um, you know, the opportunities there and the initial uh, kind of magnetism is that you really understand the work that you're involved in. You understand the ups and downs, like you were saying. And, the challenges of, uh, you know, we're, we're, as many married couples are, we're complementary personalities. She's an extrovert. I'm an introvert. She's, you know, lots of vision and what if, and I'm a lot of operations and let's make this happen and, and all those kinds of things, which work really well in a relationship and a business partnership. And there's also that commonality of the shared experience and the shared passion for something. So in our work, it's not something a lot of people understand or can wrap their head around you're teaching people here and you go out and you speak and you train. It's like, so maybe they've had a, a, they've seen somebody do that once or twice, but understanding what that is and all that comes along with it and what works and what doesn't and the pitfalls and the, the bad days and the good days, having somebody who understands that is uh, in your, in your corner is a pretty awesome thing. I bet it is. And I definitely put myself in your shoes as being an introvert. My wife is as well. So we we balance ourselves out in a lot of ways, but not that way. Um, And selfishly for me, something you would understand, talk about the ups and downs of being on the road. I don't know about you, but for me, you know, I travel, I speak for a couple of days, sometimes, you know, eight hours plus working with clients, teaching all day. I come home and my wife just really wants to hear about my trip. Like, how was it? How was the group? How was the client? How was everything? I've been talking for the better part of the last 72 hours and I'm done. And and in the beginning, it was really hard for her. And I was too stupid to realize like this is important to her. You've muscled through talking this far, like muscled through it further. Like your relationship is worth it. So that was that was one that my wife and I had to work through. And I've probably not learned as much as she has hoped yet, but at least I'm I'm aware of it and and working on it. But being an introvert, that, that's probably one of the areas or examples that you two have been able to work through and support each other together. Yeah, it's interesting. The uh, I, I had a, uh, a colleague who, uh, totally different topic, but also in this industry and uh, in business of somebody who travels a lot and speaking, you know, for her, she was doing 100 and, 100 and some days a year, a lot, a lot of days on the road. And uh, she would get home and, and want to just, she was the opposite, wanted to inundate her partner with all of her everything that's happened and so forth. And it was too much. And she said that for her, she learned a metaphor that really helped her manage it was soaker hose versus fire hose. Yeah. And so, you know, if you think of a fire hose, if you spray it at a garden, it's just going to push all that dirt out of the garden, just, you know, scrape it down to the, the base. But a soaker hose gently lets the water soak in and now it, now it absorbs and so finding, and if there's a communication metaphor in there somewhere, right, for all of us of finding the right way and the right degree. So like I'm thinking about to answer your question, Karen was in uh, Chicago yesterday. I was in New Hampshire. We were both in different gigs. We both got home. 
uh, I had had an extra hour to catch up with our son and then she got home. And so we need to exchange all this information about our days. And I was like, you're saying like, ah, man, I'm tired, introvert, you know, like, do I really have anything to share? You know, it was a pretty standard day. That's how I started. It was a pretty standard day, standard program. Not, not a ton. Well, there was this one thing. That was interesting. Okay. And then back to the son, the kids. Like, how was yours? And then she gets, she gives me the, woo, all the things. And by then I'm like, oh, you know what? There were three other things. <laughs> so, you know, and then it unfolds. And it's, I soak her hose it in. I try to, to yeah. soak it in. Get the one thing, the two things, and then um, they'll come. But, yeah, investing in those relationships is important. Oh, it's super important. It's funny to hear you say standard because that's almost always where I say, yeah, pretty standard. Par for the course. It was fun. <laughs> and I'm not trying to be evasive. It's just, well, we'll just do it every week. It's par for the course. Yeah. Um, but I think hearing your approach to that also leads up to something that I've heard you say about yourself before, that you are generally looked at as somebody who is an optimistic individual, which I think is a good thing. So I'm curious, how do you maintain your optimism? I don't think I'm a pessimist at all. I've been told I'm pragmatic and I believe I'm probably pragmatic to a fault. So I'm kind of in the middle somewhere, too rational for my own good, maybe. Um, but being optimistic, how do you maintain that optimism? And then how do you see others being impacted by that professionally through your work? That's interesting. I'm uh, trying to think about optimism as a quality because it's it, it's interesting if you were to ask me like, pick five words to describe yourself. I'm not sure optimism would be one of my words, but it's probably true in the sense of, I'm thinking about the the foreword of a book I wrote uh, and published last year called Tomorrow Together. So it's a collection of personal essays, not in the leadership space, but, and uh, so I, I can, I can have my whole life have had bouts of melancholy and and like what I would call small D depression, like not the clinical kind, but the you know, like that, that kind of stuff that comes along. And I actually think that the optimism that I have comes from that, uh, that reality that faces sometimes like this is challenging, this is hard, but we're going to figure it out. So it's that belief that we can sort this out, we can figure this out. And if we work together, if we keep thinking about it, if we give it some time, set it down, look at it from another angle, we're going to figure it out. If we'll keep talking, if we can solve, you know, if, if there's another person involved, we can we sure. can figure this out. Um, and if we can't, then we'll figure out a way to work around it or work through it or, you know, but life goes on. So there's that, I think, it, it, I'm, I'm going to call it, to use your phrase, prag pragmatic optimism. <laughs> nice, nice. I might have to steal that one from you if you don't mind. I'll give you credit for it for as long as I remember to. And after <laughs> that, I make no promises. Well, I think I just, yeah, I don't, I, I seriously doubt I made up that phrase. So <laughs> yeah, somebody um, else may, may have used it. Somewhere. I might have just coined it for our conversation, but I think it's uh, open source. We'll run with it. So when you talk about working with other people and leading them through problems and finding solutions, especially in scenarios where other people might be overwhelmed by either the stress or the ambiguity, or some people just get so problem focused that trying to get to a solution requires so much extra work because the problem gets bigger and bigger and bigger. You talk a lot in your work about human-centered leadership. So imagining a lot of that concept goes back to you know, helping connect with people and solve their problems and work through it. So I would love it, if you don't mind, for the audience to describe to them what does it mean to be a human-centered leader? Yeah, in, in so many words, <clears throat> it's about as a leader – I'm constantly choosing to maintain a focus both on the results I'm trying to achieve and the relationships that I'm building. And so I'm constantly thinking about the human beings that I'm leading and that together that we are serving because whatever work we're doing is on behalf of somebody else, a customer, a client, a constituent, whoever it might be. And so that we're always keeping both of those things in mind. And there's a tendency a lot of uh, leaders have, and when I talk about losing your soul, it's it's, I don't mean it in like a religious sense. What I mean is we lose our humanity because what happens is you can get slow results focused that you start using people and they shrink down and um, they're no longer a three-dimensional, fully formed, messy human being, which all of us are. Now they're a two-dimensional pixel set on a screen or even worse than that, they're just their role. They're just the thing they can do for you or for your team. 
And as we reduce people and they become less than, that affects our humanity as well. And so as leaders, to the extent that we are able to, I call it re-three-dimensionalize, keep everyone's humanity in mind, including our own, as we're working towards the results we're working towards, better for us, better for them, as you mentioned earlier, better results. And so that's what the human-centered part of it is all about. It's results through our humanity, not at the expense of our humanity. I love it. And that's harder and harder to do every day. And it's also harder and harder to do as we go up the org chart, because now whether you have investors or stakeholders or shareholders or other leaders, board members, breathing down your back for specific results, they're probably focused on the bottom line. They're not necessarily focused on the people that it takes to hit what they're looking for on the bottom line. Yeah. So what are some of your favorite techniques or approaches for teaching leaders how to maintain their humanity? Yeah. So, yeah, you know, as that, that bottom line you talk about, it's so easy to reduce things to a spreadsheet. And don't get me wrong. I love a good spreadsheet. As an organization, they have their place in the world. They're a great tool, but they're not the only tool. And so as we are making decisions and thinking about things, let me give you a, a, a real practical example. So uh, in my chief operating officer role uh, several years back, we were facing a crisis with health insurance. The rates had risen again. We're trying to figure out what to do in light of, uh, you know, what were revenue targets, everything else. Okay. So CEO, CFO, and I are all in a room and we've got the spreadsheets. I mean, they are printed out all over uh, and we're just pounding through solutions. Finally, we find a good solution. All right. We've got this figured out. So kind of high five each other. We got this. I walk down the hall and I stop by uh, Gina's office. Gina's the executive assistant, admin um, uh, assistant there. And uh, she knows what we've been up to. And I said, she's like, you figure it out? I said, I think we have. So here's what we're thinking. Here's our solution. And she says, oh, okay. She says, you know what's in? Okay. So and she's processing it out loud. And she says, so that's going to, for this person, she starts naming people in the organization mm-hmm. whose situations she knows. You know, everybody's different. Everybody's got different situations. Here's how it's going to affect this single mom. Here's how it's going to affect uh, this these grandparents. Here's how it's going to affect this dude who's in college. Here's how it's going to... At the end of her, here's how it's going to affect these human beings. I was chastened. We were nowhere near done with our problem solving. And what's more, we needed to have Gina in the office in that room with us providing another angle. It wasn't just about the numbers. It's about the impact on the people, which it's easy to you know, reduce down and, and lose. And so when I talk about maintaining your human centered, right? So sometimes it's having the right people in the room to think about what are those impacts? Who's affected by the decisions? Are they represented in the conversation by themselves or by somebody, right? So that's a real practical way. A way that I, I think about this is at the core foundation of how we show up as leaders, I can give you a thousand tools, right? I can say, here's how you have this conversation. Here's how you do this. Here's what you do here. But I also want to like give a principle. And that principle is in any leadership context you're ever in, just focus on results and relationships. What are the results I need to achieve here? And what are the relationships I can build and invest in in this moment? It's never an either or. It's always a both and. And if we will, the, the thing I love about the human brain is our the way that it finds what we're looking for. So if I give it a target to go after, it'll figure it out. So if I can ask my brain, right, ask myself, hey, brain, all right, I got this tough situation. I got this thing we got to figure out. How do I get the results and build the relationships in this moment? Not either or. I got to do both. Hmm. Okay. And you start to figure it out. And there's a lot of different ways you can do that. But just as a foundational principle, a way of focusing, that's a, a way I like to help leaders think about it. That's a perfect principle. When you, how do we, when I think about principles, I think about how can we reduce the decision-making process to the lowest common denominator? So I don't need a bunch of rules. Right. I have one thought, one principle. If it falls in line with that, then we're good. So if, if I'm addressing results and relationships simultaneously, then I'm good. If I'm just addressing results, now, 
there's times where that might become absolutely necessary based on circumstances outside of our control. But except from those scenarios, if I'm just focusing on results, the people are going to suffer. The relationships are going to suffer. I'm just focusing on relationships. Well, the results should track, but they might suffer if I'm only focusing on the relationship. So I, I love the principle. That's yeah. perfect. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's even in really some of those dire situations, it's a principle you can follow. We call this land in the end. But uh, it's, you know, that idea, like, let's say that there's a huge market shift, a downturn, and people above your pay grade have decided there's got to be layoffs. And so you're going to have to reduce, you're going to have to lose half your team or or whatever it is. Those situations sometimes happen to us and they're not fully in our control. If you are the CEO, you can maybe make different decisions, figure out you, you got some different choices to make. But if you're lower in the organization and hierarchy, you may not have those decisions to make, but you still have the consequences to deal with. You can still get the results you need to achieve and invest in the relationship at the same time. You can lay people off. You can do separations, even if you have to fire somebody for cause because they, you know, acted poorly or, uh, you know, or they're just not getting the job done or they're not a great fit for the role, whatever it is, you can still treat that person with dignity and respect and validate them as a human being. They may not be the right, this might not be the greatest fit for them, but you care enough about them to help them find the fit that is right and treat them with dignity and respect. Like we, no one can ever take that away from us. That's a choice we always have. I agree with that a thousand percent. And I've seen it executed well and I've seen it, absolutely destroyed on either end. And generally when it's not handled well, in my experience has been, it's not handled well because the person communicating the message was prioritizing their own time schedule or feelings over the other person. Yes. They didn't want to take the time. They didn't want to invest the emotional capital necessary they were they were focused on how I feel and what do I need to experience in this conversation, termination, separation, whatever it may be, not what does this other person need to experience. And maybe 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago, while still incorrect, the ripple effects were not what they are today. Because now with social media and with the shift in workplace availability for people to move from one job to the next or seek one career to the next, most of us work in a small world, our own industry, our own area, whatever it is, world travels fast. So now, okay, I had to have a tough conversation with David. I wasn't really looking forward to it. So I communicated to my comfort level. It's done. It's over. Well, now I made it worse for you. And how many people are you going to tell about that? Yeah. And by the time that telephone game is done being played, however many layers out, how much worse have I made the situation for myself? It's so true. And in, um, in uh, our first book together, Karen and I, for people watching the video, it's this one, right? Was to get my finger the right word. Winning well uh, is uh, really, we talk about this in terms of when you do need to have accountability conversations, when you need to... Um, terminate for cause, any of those things, that that should, in the best sense of it, be an act of compassion and caring for that other person. My interest is in them. And if I am too fearful or insecure or whatever as a leader, and like you just said, Michael, putting myself first in that situation, I'm not serving that person. I'm protecting myself against the discomfort of something and now they're suffering as a result. That's not human centered at all. And a lot of people do that because we don't know, we don't have the tools. So it, you know, you got to learn the tools and you learn, learn how, but as a principal boy, if you can go into it with, yes, I need to make this happen and I need to do everything I can to maintain a dignity filled human relationship, everything's better. I would agree. And the rest of the chips tend to fall in line at that point for whatever direction you're moving. They, they tend to, all the pieces tend to fall in where you need them to go. Yeah. I know this human-centered leadership approach is a big part of your second book, which is over there, if people are watching <laughs> the video, the, the red one next to the white one. There we go. Um, so when you talk about courageous um, cultures, what are some of the, besides this human-centered approach and helping people yeah. pr protect their dignity and so forth, what are some of the other core elements 
that are truly critical for people who are looking at their own office right now, their own team, and looking at improving the experience of their culture in today's economy? Yeah, for sure. So first, I'd say when we talk about a courageous culture, what do I mean by that? So, you know, a lot of workplace cultures uh, are kind of characterized by safe silence, like keep your head down, don't raise your hand, don't speak up. And and we did a lot of research to figure out what's going on because as we're talking with executives in all of our work around the world, they're telling us, I don't understand why people don't raise their hand. Why aren't they contributing? Why do I have to be, somebody's got a great idea and no one else knows about it. Uh, why aren't people solving problems? And then you go talk to the same folks in the front lines of those organizations and you know what they're saying. They're saying, no one here wants to hear my idea. They don't care. They're stuck in their ways, right? And it's like, are you guys working for the same organization? So we were like, all right, what's going on here? So we did a bunch of qualitative, quantitative research to look at that, figure out when people have good ideas, or even if they think it's a good idea, whether it objectively is or not, if they've got an idea that they think could help, why don't they speak up with that idea? And so we identified some of the most common reasons that happens. Um, One is that people aren't asked. So 49% of people uh, in our work said, They're not asked by their leader regularly for their ideas. Um, Feeling that people are stuck in their ways of of being their managers, stuck in their way of doing it. Um, Fear, the lack of confidence. And then a big one uh, was uh, 50% of folks said, yeah, nothing's going to change. So I can contribute an idea, but nothing's going to happen. And then, uh, and you look at psychological safety and all the work that Amy Edmondson has done. She wrote the foreword to the book and, and so on. And, and she talks about like in the psychology of people, you've got a lot of things going on there. And this gets into your field too, is uh, people have a, a, they hang on to those negative experiences a lot longer than anything positive. So I might've had a bad experience sharing something or challenging something 10 years ago at a different company, different boss, but boy, I'm never making that mistake again. And then there's a very common thing where people underestimate the future benefit of an idea they might contribute. So yeah, I have this idea. Should I take time to, ah, it's not going to make that big a difference and back to work they go and you never get the benefit of the idea. So that's the kind of the lay of the land naturally that as a leader, if you want a team of people who are consistently contributing and speaking up with solutions and identifying problems and helping to solve them, and getting creative and innovative, you got to solve for all that because that's just the default. And so how do you do that? Well, getting real practical, start by, you got to get really clear for yourself on where you need a great idea. So if you just say, hey guys, I'm open to ideas. You know, a lot of people say, hey, I have an open door. Everybody knows I got an open door. Well, I had the most open of doors, all right? Anybody knew they can come talk to me about anything. Did Gina, in that example I shared earlier, with the insurance thing, did Gina come and tell me, hey, David, I have an idea about this insurance thing? Nope. Why not? Was she scared? No. I had nothing to do with it. Did she not know I had an open door? No. She didn't know she had an idea that was worth sharing. She didn't know that until I accidentally laid it all out and asked without asking. I gave her a chance to contribute, not because I was being a good leader. We were just talking. And So that's like one of those things. Like, so as a leader, can we get really clear on where we need a good idea? And then can we go ask for it? And in the asking, there's some real specific ways to go about that. We call it a courageous question, but it's getting very specific. So it's, uh, hey, what's one thought, one way that you think we could improve our customer experience here? What's one way we could uh, eliminate an inefficiency in this process that's that's frustrating our team? Uh, You know, oh, one of our favorites, uh, a COO of a uh, contact center support group uh, for some of the big tech companies, he once a year goes and asks all of his frontline um, customer service reps, what's one policy of ours that just sucks? <laughs> and they know because they're hearing it from their customers. And so as he asks that question, it's specific, just one, right? Which makes it easier for people to answer, just looking for one thing. And maybe that opens the door to some others, but even just that one is going to be valuable And then it gives them a chance to listen and either ultimately respond and change the policy, or if it's there for a reason, educate so they're better equipped to serve their customer. So when you're asking questions like that, uh, the idea is you're getting really specific, one topic, one item, but there's a vulnerability to it. 
It's assuming that improvement is possible. And the fact that you're asking as a leader means you don't have all those answers. And for a lot of leaders, that takes courage. So it's kind of funny that just asking about, hey, what's one way you think we can improve this would take courage. But for a lot of leaders, it really does. I th- a lot might be underselling it. And that's, and that's not a slight in any way, shape, or form to the leadership community. But how many people at some point in the process align having the right answers or making the right decisions with their self-image. Right. And it's honestly, it's how so many of us get promoted from those individual contributor roles into your first management or leadership role, where having all the answers, being technically proficient at whatever it is you're doing, that's how you get there. Well, then it, you know, and so that making that transition saying, okay, wait a minute, now it's no longer about all that proficiency. My, now my proficiency needs to be in leading people But the work, the people doing the work are always going to know the most if we can ask the right questions. Amen. And like you said, have trust is synonymous with vulnerability. And if we want people to be vulnerable in front of us, we have to in some way, shape or form demonstrate consistent or consistent, not meaning every day, but to some level, consistent vulnerability in front of them. So they'll believe it. If it's just once in a blue moon, then uh, they might not really believe what they're seeing. Yeah. Am I talking to a human being here? Yes. Because I'm a human being and I know I'm vulnerable. I know I got issues. I know I don't have all the answers. So if you're acting like you do, you're not a human being. No, no. And one particular client we had that was having a particularly difficult time getting people to open up. One of the first shifts we made was start openly talking about previous mistakes you've made in front of the group. Exactly. And it's going to be more than one and we got to do it for a while. And don't ask any questions after you do it the first couple of times because we don't want this to feel like a setup. But once people get comfortable with the fact that you're opening up about your mistakes, they're going to be willing to take some more risks and open up with you in regards to some decisions they've made, the motivations behind it and alternatives that they see. And then from there, you've got the very critical aspect of how as a leader do you respond to all that? When you finally get an idea or you hear a mistake or you hear the thing, so like in courageous cultures, we're talking a lot about people bringing ideas. So in that sense, we call it respond with regard. And the idea is that somebody brings you an idea. It might be a bad idea. It might be completely like, you don't understand where we're going at all. Okay. (laughs) That's going to happen. They'll bring you an idea that you're already doing. They'll bring you an idea that's half-baked, doesn't have all the information, or they'll bring you something that like, yeah, well, we could trial and test that. So how do you respond to all of that in a way that maintains the momentum and people feel like, oh yeah, you really do want to hear what I have to say, even if you can't use it, even if it's strategically misaligned. So we call it respond with regard. It's just four, it's three steps, right? I'm going to start with gratitude, but it's not thanking them for the idea. I'm not saying, hey, thanks for that idea. What if it's a lousy idea? I don't want to thank them for a lousy idea. I want to thank them for the act of contributing. Thank you for thinking about how we can improve here. So I'm going to thank them for their effort. Thank you for thinking about how we can improve this. Uh, then I'm going to add some information depending on the nature of the idea. You know, that, that idea sounds like it's ready to, for, to get a trial, a test. Here's where we can do that. Uh, that idea, uh, interesting, and here's some additional information that would be helpful. We've got this regulatory constraint, and this department has this objective. Things you might want to think about with, with regard to this. Uh, if it's completely misaligned, can't do it. We got to be honest about that. Say, listen, so right now our, our strategy is hundred percent. We are focused on customer acquisition and yeah, this would be a great idea for product improvement, but right now this is our focus. And if that changes, we can come back to that. But right now, this is where we're needing the idea where we got to spend the money. Like, okay. And then the third step is invitation. And that's inviting them to continue thinking, continue contributing. So Say, hey, thanks for thinking about how we can get better. Hey, listen, this, that, that idea you just suggested, it's so good. We're already doing it. Here's where you can learn more about that. And I'd love to get your thoughts on where is it where you really need their contribution, whether you really could use some, some creative thinking or some solutions. And so uh, whatever kind of idea they contributed, you can either feed that back to them. Say, hey, here's additional information. Love to get your thoughts on your idea with all of that and see what you come up with or invite them to be thinking about where you most need a great idea. And so that process of responding with regard validates people's efforts, helps coach and direct their thinking so that then they're coming up contributing better and better ideas as as they go forward. 
Fantastic concept, artfully illustrated. I certainly appreciate that. And I appreciate how you gave examples for the different variations, like great idea. We're already doing it. Good idea. We need some work. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking that that idea actually come out of a human brain, but I can't answer that way. <laughs> so here, here's a more productive answer to keep them involved. And I would bet that for most of us, responding with regard is most difficult to the ideas that are completely disconnected. Yeah, it is. Cause it's like, Oh, you know, we have, our, we are like, I'm a human being and, and we're the courageous cultures authors. So you can imagine our team brings us and we have an idea model and how we frame it's IDEA. And so they, it's like, listen, I've got an IDEA. And, uh, and sometimes they're not as strategically aligned as we would hope. So, you know, we've got to practice what we preach, but I'm a human being. So it's like, how, where did I screw up that you don't understand? This is what we're trying to do. And you're trying to take it, huh? Okay. All right. Let's have that conversation. And I believe that, oh, correct me on this, please. This is your expertise, of course. My guess is that what is stopping a lot of leaders from implementing this type of courageous culture, from asking these specific questions, from opening up to these ideas, responding in a way that preserves dignity and humanity, is the fear of having to deal with something that they either don't know how or they don't want to. They don't want to get led down the wrong road. They don't want to get trapped in a conversation that doesn't have value or isn't worth their time. They don't want to get cornered where they don't know how to respond or they don't feel comfortable responding. And that fear of the what if worst case scenario stops them from taking the steps necessary to experience so many better to best case scenarios because the opportunity to run in that worst case scenario is often much smaller and typically doesn't hurt as much as we were worried about when it yeah. happens. Yeah. So if my guess is in line at all, what have you seen that have been some of the most effective techniques to move leaders beyond that fear and get them to at least start taking, well, you were just in New Hampshire. So I'll go with baby steps from maybe the best movie filmed in New Hampshire. If people are picking up on the reference here, um, in order I to get know, them, moving I know in, that one, <laughs> get them moving in the right direction. Yeah. You know, when you're, when you're describing that, I think that is true. And that is a fear that, that keeps a lot of leaders from that. Um, another one that, um, comes up with that is, uh, and, and you'll hear this, like, I don't need ideas. I just need people to do what needs to be done right now because they're not really achieving the success they need with things are not working the way they need to. So there is a level of um, when you're getting into this work of courageous cultures, a foundation that is required. And that is um, we talk about a dance between clarity and curiosity. If you are lacking clarity in your, your team, and you don't have the fundamentals of what does success look like? What are the what are the habits, the specific things that we do that achieve success, and a culture of accountability? If you don't have those things, it's very hard to build an innovative problem solving culture on top of that, because of some of the things you just talked about. And so, as a leader, if I'm worried about those things, like how am I going to handle this, and I get these ideas, and I'm, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? Um, Yes, that's true. So in courageous cultures, we like to say, start where you aren't between clarity and curiosity. If you're in a high clarity culture, time to get curious. But if you are in a culture that's lacking clarity and more kind of everybody's doing their own thing and it's, it's just all curiosity all the time, you probably need to invest in some clarity to get that foundation. And there tends to be a nice flow back and forth between them. So you come up with a great idea as you get more curious and you start implementing it. Like, okay, well, this is what we're going to do. Now it requires clarity to get back and feed that in. And so we've got some case study examples in the book of, of how that works, of, you know, how you, you build your communication and you get your, your clarity and you, you get your performance aligned. And then we start asking the questions and we're getting these ideas. And then we, we pick the one or two and, okay, now we flow those back into clarity and how we operationally let and do those things. And then we dance back and forth as we build our effectiveness together. So the other element that, uh, can hamper leaders sometimes as you were describing that, that obstacle in a way to specific way to get through it is if you're worried about, okay, yeah, I'm not having the performance yet that I need. And I don't want to get a bunch of other ideas because we're not doing what we need to be doing much less do five other things. You can still practice this principle 
by asking about the where you how you can improve performance as a team right now. So I'm thinking of one of our clients who's doing a lot of work around improving the level of accountability in their organization. They're a fantastic organization doing amazing work. And they want to improve their accountability. So there's an opportunity there to say, hey, folks, the work we're doing is really important. We really want to provide top-notch service to our clients. Uh, And we are lacking some accountability in a couple areas. We need to improve that. And to have the conversation, what's one way that we could do that? What's one way we could improve our accountability right here in this area? Oh, well, now I'm asking for ideas. I'm creating ownership around team and organization performance and ownership of about, about accountability. And so you may get 10 or 15 ideas, and you may only be able to implement two or three of them, or you may be combined and, and so on. But now you've created a shared understanding of where we're going, how we're going, and you're getting buy-in and people's ideas about the very thing that was frustrating you. So, so often we're reluctant to have the conversation because, as you said, we fear the consequence of what's going to happen. When if we do it halfway well at all, the only, there's only upside. All of the downside is stories we're telling ourselves. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And again, those are great examples. And I really do like the question, what's one way? I like that question a lot. How it it directs the mind to answering the question you needed to. It reduces the ambiguity. It takes a lot of it, you know, some where's he going with this? Why is he asking? What should I say? What shouldn't I say? A lot of these like, internal monologue and initial fear responses employees might go through. It takes yeah. a I like that a lot. I was leading a session for a group of CEOs not too long ago and I was in Ohio and one of the CEOs in there, we were talking about trust and some similar topics kind of sat back and smiled and he looked at the group and he said, honestly, my relationship with my team has gotten better since I accepted the fact that there is a glass ceiling for how much they will trust me. Like they're never going to trust me hundred percent, no matter how hard I try, they're never going to trust me hundred percent. Once I accepted that and realized it wasn't about me, it was about my title. Now I could start communicating with them in a way and interacting with them in a way and demonstrating the, how I can earn trustworthiness in order to incrementally increase it. So now instead of getting frustrated because I don't have everybody's complete trust, I can incrementally improve it. And I believe asking questions like you're illustrating is a great tool to do that. Absolutely. And and what that CEO, I think, was illustrating there for all of us is at any level of leadership is that people are carrying things into that relationship with you as a leader that have nothing to do with you specifically. Some of them will also have something specifically to do with you, but they've got a lot that doesn't. And if you're going to be effective, you need to be aware of those things and what they are. Like we were talking about earlier, people's supposition about like, my idea is not going to make a difference. It's not going to matter. It's not going to have a beneficial effect. That's a default position. Most people, not all, but most people have. Mm -hmm. So we have to get out there and ask and let them know it does matter. Yeah. It'll make me chuckle on the inside when I hear a leader talking about how, you know, they, they're frustrated because their team isn't thinking like a leader. Their team isn't thinking like a business owner. Their team isn't thinking strategically and they want that from their team. Yeah. Well, who taught them how to do that? Yeah, hear it (laughs) all the time. What experience have they had? What direction have they had? What support have they had? What examples have they had? Oh, none. We just tell them, we want you to think like a business owner. We want you to think like a leader. We want you to think like this division is yours. But other than doing our job to the best of our ability every day, we don't have the ability to do that. It hasn't, we haven't been taught. We haven't experienced that. And I feel like all of these things, kind of lead into that entitlement trap where leaders feel entitled to decisions, information, contributions, actions, but in the eyes of their teams, the leader hasn't necessarily done the things to contribute the pro- to the process to make that the reality that everybody's experiencing. And what I love about your courageous culture approach is it addresses so many of those. Yeah. You know, it's so, so often when we will hear a leader say, you know, my team's not thinking strategically first place to look is, do they have all the information they need to think strategically? And then have you asked the right questions to draw that out? Because they're not having those questions presented to them every day. So why would they? Uh, and are, you know, and then other thing, I remember when I was uh, interviewing uh, Jason Freed, you know, uh, co-founder of uh, Basecamp, um, 
uh, in courageous cultures. And he said, look, you want people thinking strategically and solving problems and thinking creatively. Do they have time to do that? If they look at their schedule, if it's wall to wall, you're not getting that from them. And it's unrealistic to expect it. And so there's a lot of things that go in structurally as well as the questions we're asking, the environment we're providing, if that's something we really want from our, te- from our teams. A great point. So you've talked about research that went into your books. You've talked about interviews that went into your book. And for me, of all of the agonizing things that go into writing a book, um, there were also really cool aha moments where research I read took me in an unexpected direction or aligned mm. with somebody else or, or turned me on to something new. But as you were doing your research and conducting your interviews, what examples did you run into where you had those like aha moments where now you learned something new and powerful based on the research you were putting into your work? Yeah. So uh, for sure, there was that alignment around some of the stats and the, the Amy Edmondson research that really were like, wow, looking at the, just the way the human brain works. And so you talked about fear response. There's just all the psychology that's there. And then when you put a bunch of those brains in the same room or organization together, the way that they amplify and you get that coherence and all those things. And so if, as leaders, I, I just feel strongly we have to be students of the, of the human mind because that's who it is we're working with. That's how, and if we know how it works, we're better able to, to, to serve. And so, um, there was that alignment there, but like when you talk about surprises, one of the data points that um, we found surprising was we asked a question in our research, if you had a good idea that you knew could make a difference and you choose not to share it, why? Why would you not share it? And by far the number one response was fear that I wouldn't get credit. Hmm. And it's so interesting because when we will be doing a keynote or a big workshop, you know, you have a huge conference room or ballroom or something, and you share that, and you can just hear the murmurs of everybody going, mm-hmm, <laughs> like there's immediate resonance as it goes across the... And so it's so fascinating what a shared experience that is in the the Western corporate workplace. And other, not just Western, I mean, globally, it's, it's a problem in, in many places. But in a culture individualistic culture of the West where people value that look at what I did that we're not attributing enough credit and that that's such a shared experience of it's just going to get subsumed. I'm not going to be valued for it. So why bother? And so as leaders, if we can give credit and we can shine a light on people and celebrate people in a way that's meaningful for them, some people like public recognition, some people not. Mm -hmm. So if we recognize that and know who they are, but to give credit, makes a tremendous difference. And I was, Karen and I were both surprised at just how much of a standout quote uh, objection that was the reason people wouldn't share. Yeah. I think if I was just to make a list and guess like the reasons why people wouldn't share, it would make the list, but I don't know that it would be that far up the top, but you know, maybe fear of embarrassment or fear of consequences or nobody cares, you know, those, those kinds of things would probably be further up the list than. Yeah. They were for us in our hypothesis. Absolutely. So that's why you've got to do the research, but that's important. And if you, again, it's when I spent all that time teaching interrogation, people used to ask all the time, like, why would somebody ever confess? Because to a rational human being that's never done anything wrong and has no basis of comparison to that conversation, why would anybody confess? But it's really hard to replicate the emotional experience that somebody is dealing with when they know they've done something they shouldn't. And now they're in a conversation about it and they have the opportunity. It seems like the truth is no. How much should I share? When should I share it? All those things that it's hard to replicate that emotional and cognitive experience if you've never had it. Like you to to recreate that in like a scientific vacuum would be almost impossible because there's no real consequences that ethically that, that you could put on somebody. So I, I would guess that for a lot of leaders, when we think about putting ourselves in the shoes of our team, the further we've been removed from that experience, the harder it can be to go back and think about how important recognition is, how important credit is, how important appreciation is, how important a little favor here or there, do something nice for me is. Things that to us, as we go up the ladder and get consumed by the business and the vision and the mission and the goals and the bottom line and all these things become less valuable because that's the level we're thinking at. But as you look back down the ladder or the mountain or the org chart, whatever metaphor you want to use, 
it is still so important at those levels, but it can be really hard for leaders to slow down, recognize and execute on that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and your people are also looking at you because you still have the opportunities. Like, let's just talk about sharing ideas. Um, what example are you setting? Are you speaking up on behalf of your team? What's your level of psychological safety? Are you, when you have an idea, are you bringing it forward? Are you modeling what that looks like for them? Or are you saying, hey guys, I really want your ideas, but you're not sharing anything above? Well, they're going to shut down. You know, uh, so they have to see it from you too. So even when we get removed, there's a way to reinsert ourselves to have some empathy and and regain some familiarity with those situations. And, you know, and staying, that's that back to what we opened our conversation with of talking about being human-centered is like to everything we can do as a leader to maintain connection to the genuine human experience of the human beings that we're leading is only going to make us more effective. I couldn't possibly agree more. So I know you've got three books on the shelf behind you, but I've heard a rumor that there might be another book coming down the road. I don't, I'm not asking you to give anything away. I'm certainly not trying to put you on the spot. Is there a bit of a preview that you might be able to give us to get us I, warmed up for the spring? I can, and uh, and, and Michael's being uh, uh, humble here because uh, he's actually quoted in it, and uh, we already got his release, so he knows that's happening. So, uh, no, we're we are we're excited about this next one. So I was laughing when you said three. I've got three on the top there, but this is our between the two of us. I think our seventh book, my sixth. I think that's right. And uh, this one's called uh, Powerful Phrases, uh, and it's. Uh, 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 phrases for dealing with workplace conflict. So, uh, you know, how do you de-escalate conflict in the workplace, common causes of, of conflict? How do you say no when you're overwhelmed? How do you deal with a matrix environment? So many different, we have over 300 very specific phrases for dealing with a wide variety of different workplace conflict situations um, and powerful phrases for dealing with workplace conflict. Um, in addition the goal is, it's not that we're going to eliminate conflict. What we want to do is eliminate destructive conflict and emphasize and invest in the productive conflict, the good kind, the courageous culture kind, where we're talking about ideas and making things better and how we can, how we can do better together. And so how do we do that? And there's four dimensions uh, that, are, that you invest in to do that, that we, we cover from connection, clarity, curiosity, and commitment. We'll save those for another conversation, but we get real, again, you know, we're all about practicality over here. So get real practical, specific words to say, uh, and, and then the approach to, uh, to take the conversation from there. So we're very excited about that. It's, uh, we've had a, uh, so many people in our, from our clients and our publisher and lots of different people in our life asking for that kind of thing. So we know it's going to be good. And the other thing that's exciting for us is, oh, yeah, we did the research for courageous cultures for powerful phrases. We, Talked, we interviewed uh, 5, 000, over 5,000 people in 46 different countries, including all 50 of the U.S. states and I think most of the Canadian provinces. So we've got a ton of data that also informs this and goes into, um, into the work and the tools and so on. So we're very excited about what it's going to do for people. Well, my curiosity has now been clarified, and I am very much committed to reading that when it comes out. And I'm excited. I think a lot of times the the concepts and the theories and the principles are great, but there are situations that people are just thinking, I wish I knew what to say. And while it's not always a perfect puzzle piece fit, if there are some of those examples for people to fall back on and use the right way in the right context, that's awesome. So I'm glad you said we can talk about that in another conversation. I'm I'm gonna take you up on that. Be, be careful what you be careful what you open yourself up for. But um, uh, you're gonna have to twist my arm real hard to talk about that. Um, we're very very excited for it. Uh, I can't wait. I can't wait. So in the meantime, I want to be very respectful of your time. You have given us so much today. I'm so thankful for the detail that honestly you went into in your answers. So many illustrations, so many examples, how to apply it. I'm grateful for all of that. Thank you. For people who have listened to this and are like, wait a minute, he's got six other books and a podcast and a company, and I've learned this much in this conversation, where are all the places people can go to learn from you and Karen? Yeah, absolutely. So the number one place is our business website, letsgrowleaders.com. And you'll find links there for the podcast, for the books, all that. If you're interested in one of the titles or podcasts we mentioned specifically today, um, you can go to Courageous Cultures 
uh, courageouscultureBook.com, and that'll take you to the book. You can go to leadershipwithoutlosingyoursoul.com. That'll take you directly to the podcast. If you don't remember any of that, letsgrowleaders.com. Everything's there. Also, uh, real active on LinkedIn and uh, answer questions. Love to talk to you there too. So if you're on LinkedIn, you can find me at uh, David, middle initial M, last name die, D-Y-E. And I will make sure to have all of those links in the show notes. So people don't have to worry about remembering them. They can go get them right there and it'll be real easy for them. So I think we've got time for one more question. And this might be the most important or pressing question to ask before we get out of here. It is fall. We are here in the United States and you are a University of Colorado <laughs> alum. So I got to ask, there's a lot of excitement on campus over under win total this year for the Buffaloes. Oh, goodness. I don't know if I'm going to go over under, but I definitely have been enthused about So I, I, I uh, attended the University of Colorado during their last national championship run. Now, it's too soon to say this is a national championship run. At our time of recording for listeners, they've only been played two games. <laughs> All right. But those have been an impressive two efforts. And you so, know. Yeah. So we got in-state rivalry coming up this weekend. That's going to be fun. My daughter went to the school that we they're competing against, so that's always fun for us to to heckle each other about. And uh, then we've got two big, uh, big opponents coming up, top 10, top 15 schools. So it'll be fun to see, but it's, it's just been fun. You know, I, I love college sports in general because although they're getting a bit more professionalized, there's still a, I don't know, a fun element about them. That's okay. just different. So that I've been enjoying that. Taking me back, I told Karen the other day, it's taking me back to my college days, rooting, uh, cheering them on. Well, that's awesome. I do think it is fun. It's exciting to see. I don't, experiment is not the right word. This is not an experiment. It's certainly a different path that Dion is taking with, I call him Dion. Like I know the guy coach Sanders has taken with the team. So it's going to be very Co coach prime, Michael <laughs> coach prime. To those so now you know how disconnected I am, uh, um, but it'll be very interesting to see how his leadership approach and his strategic approach and those types of things work long-term. I expect them to, I don't mean to sound that negative, but it'd be very yeah. interesting to see how that, that shift plays out. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, and it's uh, one of those things where you, you never know fully what's going on, but reading interviews and, and so on, I'm hopeful. Um, I mean, the thing that's most important to me for any athletic coach is, Hey, listen, I know you're a, you're coaching your son as well. Right. And in, in little league and it's how much do you care about it's back to results and relationships. If you're only about the W's not good enough, gotta be about the the kids that you're taking care of and you're coaching and leading and the, what you're teaching them. Cause they're not on to go play pro and all that. So it's uh, uh, all of that together. And my sense is that he does care about those things. So, and that is his staff does too. So hopefully that's the case. I hope so. Time will tell David, I can't thank you enough. Thank you for taking the time, sharing all of the insight that you did. I'm so grateful. I know everybody else had to have taken a ton of notes from this conversation. I was taking notes while you were talking and I'm really excited for our next conversation as well. So thank you very much. Michael, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And I also will look forward to that next one. And in the meantime, uh, head over to the website. You can download sample chapters for all of our books. So you can get, get a taste going there and see if that's uh, up your alley. And otherwise, uh, go Buffs. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Take care. Enjoy the football this weekend. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Michael. David, thank you so much for another wonderful conversation. I truly appreciate the depth and detail of all of your answers and the actionability of all of your answers. So many little things that people can turn around and start applying right now in all of their conversations as they're looking to improve not only the culture of their business, but the culture of their relationships with their clients and vendors and even in their family and personal lives as well. Thank you so much. I love the concept that the fight for power and control are just energy wasters. The fact that once again, results and relationships aren't an either or. We need them both and we drive our results through our relationships. Finding clarity through curiosity, starting where we aren't, such another great idea. And asking that question, what's one thing or what's one way? The specificity of that question and the power that it gives people to contribute is fantastic. David, thank you so much. And of course, thank you to all of you who took the time to listen to our conversation today. We truly appreciate you being here, and I hope you got just as much out of that conversation as I did. Thank you. We can't leave 
without thanking our sponsors, of course. So on the way out, thank you, Humantel, once again, for sponsoring the show. For anybody who's interested in developing their ability to read nonverbal communication, especially facial changes of emotion, please head over to Humantel.com and enter the code INCOISIVE25 for 25% off their best-in-class online self-paced training. Check it out. I've done it all. I personally vouch for it. Head on over there. Please also check out Emotional Intelligence Magazine at ei-magazine.com for all of their expanding catalog, podcasts, interviews, articles, online training, cohorts, blogs, so much going on over there. Please go check them out. And we have the International Association of Interviewers at CertifiedInterviewer.com. For all the professional interviewers or aspiring professional interviewers, please head over to CertifiedInterviewer.com and check out everything they have going on over there from their networking to their events online and in person to all of the resources they have for investigators. You can certainly see if membership is right for yourself or your organization. And while you're there, absolutely check out the Certified Forensic Interviewer Designation Program. Get all your questions and answered and find out when and how it might be best to get yourself and your team leveled up to that level of expertise in the world of investigative interviewing. Once again, thank you all so much for being here. Please do all the things the algorithms ask us to like the show, subscribe, share the show, comment. Please send us your thoughts. If there's anything we can do better, you want to see a little bit more of this, a little bit less than that. You want to see us make some switches. Let us know. We're always looking to evolve what we do here. Thank you so much. Please stay safe. Take care of each other, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.